Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Joanna J. Bryson, Associate Professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Bath and one of the keynote speakers at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening on October 3rd in Bristol, UK. We talked to Joanna about AI, ethics, and much more. Joanna questions the separation between different machines and the special treatment AI receives. She calls for the reconsideration of human awareness of ethics itself, of understanding better why we are obliged to each other, which could then make it easier to define our obligation towards a device. Joanna explains why she is against machines being responsible for themselves and how building AI that reminds us of people might lead to less transparency in society. At last, she gives examples of how interdisciplinary research can be organized in such a way that allows us to understand more. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Joanna Bryson, professor at the University of Bath. Hi Joanna. Hi, how are you? Very good. Uh, I'm very excited to have you on our podcast. Uh, we've been trying to make it happen for some while, some while now. Um, well, and, happy to be here. Yes. And friends, Joanna is one of the keynotes at the Anthropology and Technology Conference happening in, um, in Bristol this October. We have um, brought her on the podcast to speak a little bit to the topic of artificial intelligence and her work in that space. Um, Joanna, before we dive into this topic, can you tell me and our listeners a little bit about your own path um, with artificial intelligence? Well, actually, um, my first degree was uh, called Behavioral Science from uh, University of Chicago, mm. which at that time was basically non-clinical psychology. So it was a social science degree. And I've always been involved in AI, um, mostly because I see it as a scientific uh, method, as a, a way to understand better how intelligence works in nature. So what I'm fundamentally interested in is why different species use intelligence in different ways, and different, you know, different individuals use intelligence in different ways within species. And even the same individual uses intelligence in different ways at different times in different contexts. So those are the fundamental things I'm really interested in. Mm -hmm. um, my present research is uh, partly that. I don't get as much time for that as I used to, but I, uh, but I am doing, I think, some really important work now on understanding how, how the addition of all this extra communication and intelligence is affecting human society. And uh, we have a paper right now that's an archive that we're trying to get you know, published somewhere on understanding uh, why political polarization is really well correlated with wealth inequality. So, so I've been able to take my sort of fundamental blue sky research and apply it to some really important topics right now. Um, but uh, when, I, when I was trying to finish my PhD, I actually wound up going to MIT and to, to survive in an engineering university, I wound up uh, do, working in systems, uh, systems AI, systems engineering of artificial intelligence. So making it easier for people to build human-like AI for using in, uh, for, well, I wanted to use it for scientific simulations. A lot of the people that took up what I wrote, though, actually wound up doing that in the games industry. Mm. And I still have uh, a lot of my PhD students work in this area. And notice, notably, uh, two of my very recent students, uh, Andreas Theodoro and Rob Wortham, um, but also actually Sven Gaudel was another one like that. 
that and a lot of masters and undergraduates have been working to make to sort of extend that work and make it easier not only to build AI, but also to understand AI, even if you're not the one who builds it. So this is uh, part of the effort for transparency in AI, which is, of course, again, critical for, for sort of ethical application of AI. And then finally, um, while I was doing my PhD, I noticed that people were just kind of weird about AI. <laughs> and, and in particular, if you have a robot that's shaped like a person, then whether or not it works, people feel obligated towards it. They think that, that, that it deserves uh, special things. Mm -hmm. and, and this was just really weird to me. So I started writing papers about why is it that you would make this mistake of thinking that some machines need, uh, need more care than other machines. And, and that has become one of the things I'm most known for. Uh, and, and I'm doing a lot of work now in AI ethics and uh, technology policy. So I'm spending a lot of time traveling around and talking to governments and non-government organizations and trans-governmental organizations like the UN and the EU and the OECD. Well, the OECD is not trans-governmental, it's more NGO. But anyway, all those kinds of people. And that's taking a lot of my time. What's your motivation behind, uh, behind going and engaging with so many organizations? Well, basically, I think, you know, what, what are academics for? I think, you know, a lot of people think that we're there to do, you know, blue sky research. And that's true. I think that um, it's important that someone in society does some of the high risk, high reward research. But it, I think it's even more important that we take, we kind of are the people that we're really good at repeating back what we learned. You know, we did on the tests and whatever. And so our job is we're sort of the libraries for society. We take the, the best ideas to hear and we try to get them to our students and also to, you know, companies that need, need advice and also to governments. So, um, you know, it, I, I'm at the stage of my career that, that, if, that if, if what I know is valuable, well, then I should deliver that value. Um, I, you know, I, we all have to live on this planet. So obviously we hope that governments take the best advice they can get. And being an academic is an indication that you're one of the better people to give advice, at least in your own area. Yeah. Um... I, I, I want to start diving into this topic of your work, artificial intelligence and ethics, with maybe a very, um, I don't know, basic question. How would you define ethics? When people think about ethics, and especially when they think about AI ethics, they often think about, you know, how should AI behave? How should we build AI to behave? And now they're talking more about how should we um, uh, responsibly implement AI? And, and, you know, how do we even decide what we mm. want AI to do and, and, and what role it should have in our society? So those are the kinds of questions people ask. But other people do ask these questions about, our, do we have obligations towards AI? Do we have obligations towards our future selves, you know? Mm. And so as I've been working on this, I originally got into this area because I thought people were confused about AI. They didn't know what AI was, and that was why they were so confused about AI ethics. I have to admit that maybe this is arrogant, but or maybe it's nihilistic, but I'm starting to think that the real problem is people don't know about ethics. Mm. They don't know why it is that we're obligated to each other, and so they can't tell which other things besides people we're obligated towards. Mm. Um, and so that really, really confuses people. So I, my current real theory, to, to really answer your question, is that um, I think ethics is the means by which a society holds itself together. And so there's some general principles that, that, like for any society, that probably don't want to have a lot of theft and murder and things like that, right? Mm. But there's other things that people feel very strongly about that, that aren't really so much about 
um, you know, how to hold all of humanity together, but rather how to identify yourself as a part of a society. So, like, what is the right thing to wear? Mm. You know, how, whether or not women have to have shirts on. <laughs> you know, things like that are are we feel like those are ethical, and they and they are by my definition, they would be a part of ethics. But that's the part about defining your society rather than actually being critical to holding your society together. Although the definition is necessary for holding society together. Mm. So I think, um, well, yeah, so, but as I said, that's more like my blue sky research again about uh, on the philosophical side of what's really going on with the ethics. Mm. I was uh, a few, I think it was a few months ago. I was in London at this, um, at, at this uh, office, um, listening to, a. Um, to a group of programmers that were talking about AI algorithms. And it struck me as an anthropologist, the way they were looking at the construction of the algorithm that asked extremely fundamental philosophical questions about um, how do we act in a certain situation and what is what is the condition for that action to emerge. Um, so it really struck me. I, I, I haven't thought about that before, but it really connects very well to how you defined it. And the conversation for me is, uh, in that moment, what was more interesting was how in the moment of that conversation, they, they had started to figuring out the answer for themselves. So I'm kind of wanting to ask you, like, how does ethical AI connect to building ethics in humans in the first place? Like, can you build ethical machines without ethical humans? Or how is that, how is that connection working? <laughs> Well, one of the things I argue is that it's not the machines that are ethical. So mm. you can program a machine to take a, a moral decision. So yeah. moral decisions are ones where there's multiple possible things you could do and a society approves of some of the things more than others. And so do you choose to do the ones that society approves of, right? So you can you could definitely uh, have something, you know, like, you know, like a driverless car that you might program what how it's going to go and take options but then it's not the car that's responsible for that it's either the driver that picked which of the options they wanted or the corporation if if you hard code that in as a corporation and don't mm. allow the driver to choose so one or the other and then actually the corporation may not get an option either if, if regulators say this is the way it has to be programmed Mm. So there's it, it, it's the point at which somebody had freedom, but I don't think it ever makes sense to think of the machine itself as the one with the freedom. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. So um, I think one of the issues with AI is that there's a lot of sort of what we in, in AI call heuristics, so simple mm-hmm. rules of thumb by which people could get by and hold their societies together, um, and and sort of reason that worked when we were only dealing with evolved organisms, but don't work when you can design something. So, so for example, basically anything that talked was a moral agent, right? Mm-hmm. So, because basically the only things that talked were reasonably old kids and, and adults, right? You know, they, you know, little babies can't talk and dogs can't talk and mm-hmm. blacks can't talk. But now computers can talk. And I think that's why we get confused. And we think, is there someone else here? Because they're talking. Um, but it's not the same, it's, it's not language generated by the same process as if it were in an evolved organism, right? It's something where you were able to design everything about what the machine wants uh, what, or, or acts like it wants, uh, what it says, what its motivations are, you know, what it can sense, what it has access to. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. Sometimes people think, 
oh, you know, AI is like having children, and it's nothing like having children. Mm. There's nothing you can do when you, yeah, I mean, when you, when you have children, there's obviously some decisions you make about, you know, who is the other parent, um, and uh, how, how do you raise the, the child? Are they, you know, what language do they know? Things like that. But mm. you don't get to choose things like, you know, are, are they an ape? Uh, you know, do they have wheels? No, they don't have wheels unless they buy them. You know, and also, will they feel, uh, you know, stressed and depressed if you isolate them, if you throw them in the basement, you know, like, mm-hmm. which is a horrible thing to do, even to mention that, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, any social animal doesn't want to be isolated, whereas with AI, you don't have to build that in. There's no reason to build it in. It's not built in. There's a million AI devices. None of them even know if they're alone. Well, maybe some of them. I shouldn't say that. There's like, some, you know, like those lights that turn on if a person's moving around. You could call that knowing there's someone else there if you wanted to. But, you know, it's it's not the same kind of systemic aversion to, to being alone that, as I said, any social animal has evolved, just like we've evolved wanting sex, thinking sex is fun. It's not because it does us any good. It's because that's how life works. You know, sex is the way you have babies. Mm. And, and actually being in a group is the way that we, we are likely to survive. But rather than expecting every individual, you know, sheep or whatever to, to know that, evolution just sort of makes it so that the sheep feels more content and happier when it's around other sheep because it is it is actually safer but it doesn't have to reason that first principles it just knows oh good there's other sheep mm-hmm. so so how have you seen I, I, i'm trying to kind of position this this um algorithms and this artificial intelligence in connection to the people that build it also the power that flows between them so what is the what is the intent behind this type of building and the relationship of power with the society, with the culture inside of which that algorithm sits in the form or another? And how can that be linked to ethics? Wow, that is a great question. I think you probably want the whole conference to, to, get to <laughs> starting that. Um, one of the really interesting things is that a lot of people, when they build something, all they're thinking is like, oh, let's get people to play this enough so that I'll be famous, or you know, like if I if I sell my game for two dollars, mm. then uh, then if enough people buy it, can I pay my rent? You know, they they aren't really thinking like about about power and, and uh, manipulating people. But then all of a sudden they wind up in the situation where they do they mm. are affecting huge numbers of people's lives. Do you remember the that guy who programmed Flappy Birds? Yeah, Angry Bird Flappy Birds, and he was just in tears because he thought people were spending too much time on his game, and he'd given him all this money, but he thought. Mm. that it was just wrong for him to be wasting so much human effort. You know, he never thought of that. Mm. Meanwhile, there's other people that, like, the programmers may be programming their tool, but then someone else sees a means by which they can, for example, evade responsibility. You know, I think there's a lot of people right now that are that are looking at opportunities to, to get out of liability for, for mm. car accidents or whatever. And then they say, hey, how about if we make the, car, the cars themselves legal agents and so then we can just cap our liability risks mm. and and you know and that not like every engineer who's building the car isn't thinking that but maybe a few ceos are thinking that or maybe some you know crooks some money launderers are thinking like yeah. oh, or confused about about um what's going on maybe we can hack some elections and make sure that there's no regulations against money laundering right <sighs> you know so there's there's all kinds of uh things that are going on and you can't just pull it down to any one algorithm The, uh, you know, basically intelligence is a big part of what humans are. It's a lot of what, especially what we do consciously, everything that we do intentionally, obviously Mm -hmm. that involves intelligence. And AI is just using machines to extend that intelligence. 
So when you come down to it, everything, every human endeavor, every conscious human endeavor, not like beating your heart or whatever, but everything that we intentionally do is altered. How we can do it is altered by the fact that we now have these other tools. So, so every everything that we've ever studied in terms of politics and power and, yeah. and sociology, it, it's all it's all somewhat altered by the landscape. And in other ways, it's not altered at all. There's still the same people with mm. the same kinds of motivations, and and uh, it's kind of sad when you're sitting in a tech company trying to reinvent, you know, thousands of years of philosophy or hundreds yeah. of years of, of political science or you know, 150 years of anthropology. Yeah, yeah. And could you, is that even possible to pre-program that in? That somehow that relationship of power when the machine is a tool to the human get, gets changed and the machine becomes an agent of itself with autonomy at least over a part of that morality? So it takes me back to Asimov's three rules of robotics. You know, maybe it's not the same thing, <laughs> but it kind of makes me think, you know, like how, how, how can that be possible? Is that even possible? Right. Well, again, you, you need to think about uh, what, what you're really talking about. Um, so there's, there's uh, can we change the law so that the machines are responsible for themselves? Of course. Mm. We, could, we could just, you know, by fiat, just like, you know, there was somebody, was it Kyrgyzstan or something? That the, the guy just decides to name Thursday after his mom or something, right? Mm -hmm. You could always just do that. If you have enough control of the law, you could say the machines are responsible for themselves. The problem is then you would have the ultimate shell company. So, so you would you would be increasing the level of corruption in your in your country. So that's why I, I uh, strongly recommend against that. But of course, it's possible. That's why I bother to recommend against it. What you're probably really trying to say is, could we somehow program something such that it would make sense, or that we'd have uh, we'd have obligations towards mm -hmm. the device? Yeah. Um, I basically think that uh, I mean, there's that's not the again, that's not really the question. You can you can. Uh, you know, think about art. We have obligations towards art. We have to keep it safe and clean and dry. Well, some art, somehow we don't care about like graffiti art or something or, mm -hmm. or whatever. But if we care a lot about the Mona Lisa, although apparently we only started caring about the Mona Lisa after it got stolen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Before that, it was just like another painting. But anyway, the the um, the point is that with AI, if if we're talking about something that's mass produced, what my my uh, basic feeling is that we shouldn't. We shouldn't be trying to make something that people have obligations towards because we have enough uh, trouble taking care of the things we already have obligations towards. So, so you know, we have like 8 billion other people that we need to figure out how to treat more decently than we presently do. Mm. Um, and, and we have like animals and we have, we have the, the environment. Why, why would you build something that you need to have obligations towards? Why would you want to do that? So, mm -hmm. for example, you could, with any device, you could, a, a digital device, you could build it in such a way that you can back it up. And then, even if everything else, like every other, other way, it, you felt like you had obligations towards it, you wouldn't have to worry because it was backed up, right? So you could always, you know, save, save the child from the fire or the Shakespeare, but don't bother to save the robot from the fire because the robot's backed up and you could just get another, get another body, download the brain again, and you're, you're set. Mm. So... I think that um, the desire, the desire to build something that's like these eternal perfect children, that that would or or yeah, that this idea to own own like like have voters, have citizens that you can buy and sell, mm. <laughs> you know, what, what does that even mean? That just destroys democracy, right? And yeah. this idea that you, you could uh, you somehow preserve yourself uh, in AI heaven 
when in fact, you know, most devices are, are you know, the meantime to failure of technology of like formats is like five years. Mm-hmm. And humans are living like 90 years now. And yet somehow people, I think because they confuse computation for mathematics, they think, oh, if only I was AI, then I'd live forever. Or I could make a better kid than the ones I'm making biologically by, by you know, designing. It's just like, no, you're probably not going to do that. Yeah. This goes back to the, the, the definition of ethics. So this, you know, someone can ask a question and say something like, what happens before time? Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a great question. Sounds very deep and profound, but actually it makes no sense whatsoever because before is only defined within time. So you yeah. can't have before time. And I think it's, a, it's, it's similar to say, can we make AI that we're ethically obliged to? Because basically... If ethics really is, uh, like, how do you hold a society together, yeah. Then, yeah. then it's basically a mechanism of negotiating equilibrium between peers. Yeah, And, yeah. and so you can't build a peer. Yeah, right? that, yeah. That's why I'm saying, yeah. you know, children, yeah. that's again, children are actually quite like you. In, in 20 years, they're going to yeah. be adults, too. Yeah. They're very, very like you. But you don't, when you can totally design something, as we can totally design AI, then it's not a peer relationship. So I don't actually think it's coherent to think about ethical obligations to AI. Yeah. Um, no, my, my question was more... Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is a second mm-hmm. order obligation so that yeah. if you treat AI badly and then that makes you treat other people badly, then that would be bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, no. but what, the British, what yeah. the British have said about that is you shouldn't do that. You should therefore, because of that principle, you shouldn't build AI that reminds us of people so that you don't, by treating AI badly, treat people badly. Yeah, yeah. Now I, I was more thinking if you can if you can build inside uh, the the system itself a way for our own moral code to be checked and rechecked, right? Because I think uh, oh. as more well, yeah, as can do that. So so one thing. Well, okay, I guess it depends. You mean the science? For sure, you can. Uh, I mean, think about banks, right? Mm. You know, there's not much AI there, but just that you can keep track of accounts and see whether humans did the right thing. Yeah. So with AI, we can do that way better. In fact, that's like the scary thing is that maybe we could do that too much. You know, so again, a lot of people talking about building trustworthy AI. And I wrote a thing saying no one should trust AI. And the reason is because you don't need to trust it. You don't need to speculate. You can have transparent AI. You can have accountable AI. You can know exactly how the system works. But as I was working in this area, and there's a lot of people who talk about this, you only trust when you have ignorance. And why, but why do we have ignorance of each other? So it's easy to um, to use AI to uh, monitor uh, people, and and that's actually uh, a problem. That might be uh, we might be too good at that, and we mm. have to really worry about leaving people enough room so that they can be creative, uh, so they can have dignity, they can flourish. Yeah. So that 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 was the thing I was worried about. Yeah. Joanna, in another note, have you ever worked with social scientists or with anthropologists in, in, in the kind of work that you do? And maybe you can speak a bit to that. Yeah, no, I, I work with social, well, I am a social scientist anyway. And then, of course, yes. I collaborate with other social scientists all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't do it so much on the AI ethics work as on the ethics work. So I've, I've been doing a lot of work in understanding um, public goods investment and cooperation in humans. Um, and why, why, you know, why humans uh, have language and other species don't, because that's mm-hmm. already a big cooperative effort. Yeah. But then more recently, in the last decade, I've been working a lot on why um, some parts of the world uh, actually punish people who contribute uh, a lot to the public good. You know, and, and, um, and so that's called antisocial punishment. 
Um, so I collaborate with uh, a lot of uh, mostly sort of biological anthropologists. I've also worked with, you know, biologists just like working mm. on uh, like turtle, turtle cognition. Actually, even bacteria. It's really interesting that um, bacteria transmit huge amounts of information between each other. Um, and so they also cooperate. So I've also worked with microbiologists, um, but the, the, I've worked with, um, yeah, my, one of my favorite conferences is the European Human Behavior Evolution Association. Um, and that's mostly, that's mostly, like I said, biological anthropologists and behavioral ecologists. But I also, just this summer, and I, I once before attended a meeting uh, called the International Conference on Social Dilemmas. Mm-hmm. So social dilemma is like, how do you choose whether to invest in yourself or, you know, in the group, you know, mm-hmm. because you, you know, at any particular time, how do you spend time on which? And that is attended by a lot of psychologists and a lot of sociologists. Mm-hmm. So, and then I do, I'm right now I'm collaborating with a political economist, um, uh, Nolan McCarty, Nolan, sorry, a political economist, uh, Nolan McCarty, who, who's one of the specialists in um, why political polarization and inequality are correlated. So, um, yeah, yeah. And, and I've I also worked with philosophers. I don't know if you call them social scientists. Oh, <laughs> that is great. And do you have any experience also uh, working with industry? Um, well, I worked in industry. I was a professional programmer, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I worked with industry that much, except in, in policy all the time. Of course, obviously, I, I, I was on the Google ATAC board, uh, which was not over in a week. I actually was on the board for months. Yeah. Um, but we just never got to meet together. Uh, I was, uh, I, I, you know, I used to talk to all kinds of companies when I go to these uh, technology policy events. And whenever they ask me, I, you know, Airbnb had me come out and talk about, um, about my work in AI bias because they were worried about human bias, which so the AI bias in a way wasn't that relevant. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyway, I, you know, I, if, if, again, with, um, with, with, with companies less than technology, I, I feel more comfortable, I mean, sorry, with companies less than governments, mm. um, I, I, I feel like when, if you're doing work for a company, they ought to pay you. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we do, uh, you know, we do collaborate. We have a new um, uh, Center for Doctoral Training in Accountable and Transparent AI, and we do actually have um, a bunch of uh, corporations who, who've pledged to uh, fund uh, PhD students to help them work on the hard problems. And then we don't only have corporations in there, we also have like uh, government organizations within, within the UK, like mm. the Financial Conduct Authority, actually the Church of England. Um, we, so we have a, a variety of agencies that hopefully will keep each other in check, keep our ethics uh, on the level. Yeah. But I think there's a fundamental problem of just ma- helping people understand how to use AI and uh, how to um, maintain accountability within society despite the fact we're using AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we're focusing on. Yeah. I-, I wanted to ask you, where do you see this responsibility sitting, right? Because you were mentioning at the beginning how uh, ethics and morality are kind of like the, the, uh, the way the society is held together. Um, and I was wondering, like, who has the responsibility and the accountability for when that is disrupted, for, for when that is, oh. yeah? Uh, and, oh, right. and that, yeah, yeah, you keep taking things just slightly different from the way most people do. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I thought I knew where you were going with that question, and then, and then, I, and then I didn't. So normally people ask about um, who's responsible for what uh, a, you know, a robot does or an AI system does. 
And the thing we're trying to communicate is that, um, it, well, obviously what you want is if you buy you know, a robot, that, that you should be able to determine what the robot does. Mm-hmm. So you would think that the user should be responsible for most of what the robot does. But it's, of course, like with any manufactured uh, artifact, it's a possibility mm-hmm. that the manufacturing went wrong, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, the, an obvious thing with AI is that someone could have hacked it, so the cybersecurity could not be there. Mm-hmm. And if, and again, if you weren't, if you didn't put the patches on, if you weren't keeping your 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 AI or your robot upgraded, then that's your fault. But if the company um, didn't do a good job, or for anything else, you know, mm. they built anything else and that, that actually turned out to be hazardous, then it's the company's fault. Yeah. Okay, so how do you know which is true, whether yeah. it's the company's fault or the user's fault? And, well, so yeah, and also how do norm- you go deeper into when this is not necessarily such an easy Cartesian thing to see, right? Like when it's it's their fault because they are maybe not being ethical towards a specific group or another, or they are... Right. Or, or they are promoting a way of being or doing that ultimately has potential negative effects on some groups. So, so who is kind of like the holder of, of, of that responsibility? Right. So basically, the, the, the main point, and this is what I was saying to my very first AI ethics paper back mm. in 1996. <laughs> the main thing to communicate is that it's not that different, again, from any other business process. Mm. So... So you decide, you know, through various levels of, um, of uh, you know, like that, you, you know, people decided that they don't want it to be that, that, that you, you can't choose that you're only going to rent out your house to people that are the same race as you are mm. or something like that. You know, we, we've made a bunch of rules about what, what landlords have to do. You know, we've made a bunch of rules about how safe a car has to be. And so... It's, it's wrong to think that we can make one rule about AI. AI is just a technique. That's like saying mm. that there's one rule for stuff that's painted red. Mm. You know, it mm. doesn't, <laughs> that's not the way we do things. We, we, so you have to have, um, but, but, but the thing about AI is that because of the digital steps, we can keep really clear accounts. Mm. So we don't always do that, but we could. Mm. And so the thing that we're trying to communicate right now is that 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 if the if there's not a clear record of what was going on and who's responsible, then mm. the company is responsible for not having produced that record. Yeah. So we're trying. We're, so and again, this is something that it's about um, that happens in all different uh, 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 businesses. That once a standard has been invented, you you aren't responsible for having thought of something nobody's ever thought of before. But you are responsible for knowing the standards of your mm. of your the practice in your community, mm. and so so we're trying to communicate to the governments that this is what you should tell your companies that they, that you expect that they got to be able to show that that they tested the system correctly mm. that they that they make they defended it cybersecurity that they know why the code was there so if anybody for example this thing about putting in a back door so so, so like some bad guy could come in and change what the robot was going to do, mm. you need to be able to look at the code base and say, how did that backdoor get there? Who wrote it? Whose fault is it? Right? Mm. So, so we're just trying to communicate that. And then once you have that, once you have that expertise in the governments and they understand that, mm. then it becomes just like regulating any other industry. And that's the way it should be. Yeah, it, yeah. it should be. And in fact, that's the way it already is in the automotive industry. That's why every time there's an accident with a driverless car, you know, we all know what went wrong within two days. It's in the mm. newspaper. 
Why? Because the automotive industry is well regulated, so they keep track of all that stuff. Hmm. Whereas, you know, Facebook or whatever, they, they, you know, there hadn't been social media before. They didn't keep track of all that stuff. And yeah. now, now, now people are going to have to. And in fact, one of the things that's still going through the courts is whether Facebook didn't um, follow the standards of, of decency that other companies did. Mm. So I've read one one article that people say may be biased because it was an ex-Googler that wrote it or something. But, mm-hmm. but the claim is that about two-thirds of companies said, yeah, we have all this personal data and we're not going to sell it to anyone. But, you know, if you want to sell things to, I don't know, tall white guys, yeah. then you, you tell us and then we take all your stuff and we show it to tall white guys. Whereas a few companies like Facebook and LinkedIn said, oh, you're interested in tall white guys. Here's all the stuff we know about them. And here's all what we know about their friends, too, you know. <laughs> and, and they were willing to sell that, whereas other people thought that was clearly enough. Mm. So if that's true, and I'm not saying that I know whether it's true or not, but if that or something like that were true, where you could show that there was an understood norm that some people violated, mm. then, of course, you should you should find the people, and that, that and particularly if they did damage by violating that norm as the election stuff looks like it is. Mm. Yeah. Well, I was wondering if, if during this process of, you know, the, the regulatory space becoming more mature is also a process where the companies themselves, like this kind of ability inside the company to start asking this kind of questions around governance and regulation um, is yeah. also starting to grow, you know, and maybe there's a there's a more interest towards the social science field, maybe because of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, you know, that that's... So it is about the awareness of, you know, you can think mm. of like, there's some companies that are just one person. So obviously one yeah. person isn't that much stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know? But but we can start making things happen so that like, you know, not, if you go to university and you're doing, mm. a, um, a, you know, like an architecture degree, there's a bunch of things you have to know before you're certified in that. Yeah. In fact, you can even be certified as an architect. You can't be certified as a programmer right now. Yeah, or maybe you will be, and maybe there'll be that kind of considerations that even a single company would know. Yeah, but for sure. I mean, I had um, I, I got kind of this tour by Microsoft. I didn't. I had never really talked to their senior developers before. Mm. Whereas, like, though no, you can't see them here or there. Suddenly, I got taken into Seattle and given a tour of people, and they said, "Look, we think of ethics as like the flip side of liability." And we've been on the wrong side of the law before. Yeah. So they were just, they were just saying, and I had already noticed, like, mm. two years. I mean, they were causing trouble until, like, 2016. And all of a sudden, like, sometime maybe late 2016, early 2017, they were suddenly leading in the ethics. Mm. They were, instead of trying to create, you know, smoke screens, they were actually trying to uh, create clarity. And they, and I, so I noticed that they were leading. And I said, you know, what's up? And they said, well, we, we, we know what it's like to be on the wrong side of the law. So it's just because they're a slightly older company that's had slightly more things happen to it than Google or Facebook, then it's almost like a person. They just had more experience. And well, I mean, yeah. when it had experience, but it's also about who you hire mm. because you realize you need some of those guys who had that knowledge, right? Yeah, yeah. Joanna, coming back into the academic um, space itself, into this world of um, not necessarily social science, but like programming and coding and building these algorithms, how much are, is ethics or philosophy or even um, culture or power or social science is part of how these these um, skills are being built? Is, is are they part of it or not? In my personal experience, um, I've inter I've worked with uh, the faculty of aerospace engineering. 
um, one of them here in the Netherlands. And I was surprised when I was uh, talking to um, a group of PhD students and understanding that they don't do ethnography, like they don't, they don't go and speak to people. For them, people are mostly numbers that they get out of reports. So I, I was wondering, like, how, how do you see that in the, in the world that you are um, teaching? Well, actually, at Bath, we mm. we we, um, we just have this new CDT, which the which is a center for doctoral training, which is um, specifically requiring the PhD students coming in will have to have they'll have to take courses in a completely different area than what they had coming in, mm. and that they have to have supervisors from two different faculties, not just two different departments. Nice. So the faculty of social sciences, the faculty of natural sciences, and the faculty faculty of engineering those are the three those are the three faculties at Bath. Mm. so we expect most of them will be um, social sciences and natural sciences because computer science is a natural science in that department I mean in our university that's pretty but, cool um, huh? yeah no I think it is very cool and I think you're going to see other things like that you can't expect everybody mm. to know everything but I do think that a lot of people are starting to realize that they need to know more than they have. And, and I think it's mm. great because originally universities were more universal. And then yeah. we all got, we got sort of uh, heaped upon with so many, you know, uh, administrative details to do yeah. and whatever, that we haven't had as much time to talk to our colleagues. Yeah. But I think that hopefully, uh, I mean, and this is one of those kind of race conditions, but hopefully that this will motivate us to be given the time that we need to collaborate with people from other from other uh, departments. Yeah. So I think that's one of the great things about universities is that there, there should be, they should be universal and there should be all those departments in every university, but unfortunately some have gone, you know, 100% technical and I think those ones will be a, at a disadvantage now. Yeah. Oh, I love your answer. One last question, because I know you need to go. Um, for, for those uh, out there that are listening to us and maybe working in tech companies and have not worked yet with a social scientist, what, what, what advice would you have to give them to kind of start exploring that space? Oh, they should, uh, they should come and work with Bath and get some of our PhD students to come in and help them. <laughs> That's very good. And one last yeah. one. Uh, any, any thoughts for those that are considering coming to um, see you at the conference in October in oh. Bristol? Well, I think it's, it's going to be great. The anthropology in Bristol is fantastic. Um, and, and so I'm really looking forward to it. I, I, don't, I don't know the details of the meeting yet, but when I get asked to do the anthropology at Bristol, I jump. So I would definitely say, come, come. I'm sure it's going to be interesting. They're Great. smart enough to recruit me, so. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So thank you for being with us today, Joanna, and looking forward to see you uh, in October in Bristol. I look forward to meeting you there, too. Bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations. Thank you.